Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And I'm sitting in a hotel conference room. It's bare and empty. It's it's just me and our recording engineer, Erdy. We're sitting here at the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour. Let me just sort of set the scene for you. This is a bunch of TV critics and reporters, and we sit in a hotel ballroom, and the stars come to us. So you'll see Julia Roberts, who I saw a couple of days ago. We just got done talking to Henry Louis Gates Jr., who's going to be on a future episode of the show. So you'll see people who range from, you know, the biggest movie stars to some of the intellectual heroes of the United States. Like, it is a really fun and exciting event, and it's 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 something I've been doing for several years now. And we've recorded a number of interviews interviews out of this you're going to be hearing through the months to come so if i ever say hey we recorded this in a hotel you know what's going on but both of our interviews in today's episode were recorded at tca the first one is with patricia clarkson she is just a terrific actress she was nominated for an oscar for her work in the movie pieces of april and now she's playing one of the great characters of this tv year i think adora the you know, I don't even know how to describe her. I would say the treacherous mother of the main character in Sharp Objects. And she's just giving you a terrific look at how to play a character who is maybe not the best person, but you really understand and empathize with her, even as you're like, oh, I'm glad she's not my mom. So I had Patricia and we talked about her great career, all this stuff she's done. And especially we talked about sharp objects and how to depict the American South. So we're going to go right to that, but stick around after it because we're going to be talking with PBS head Paula Kerger as well. Patricia, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Just to sort of set the scene for our listeners, uh, you were just on a press conference I listened to about the show, and a thing you said really stuck with me, which is anytime women are at the center of the story, we're winning. And I, I'd, I'd like to hear you elaborate on this, somebody who's you know had a career of finding these great, complicated female roles, but sometimes it can't be that easy. No, it, it isn't. Um, things are getting better. But I think... At the center of this story are three very fractured women. It's generational fracture, a mother, daughter, and two daughters that are 20 years apart. But I think we all, of course, want to see movies about, we want to see Wonder Woman. We want to see women who have done, we want to see the documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We want to see these remarkable women. But remember, most of us aren't. (laughs) (laughs) And most of us have um, issues Uh, most of us have family strife. Most of us have, uh, have suffered trauma. And so I think why this story is so powerful, you know, it has at the center three very, um, incomplete women in a way. The writing is very complete, but the women are not. But whenever, whatever kind of woman you are, if we are at the center of a story, if we are at the center of a big eight-part miniseries on HBO, we're winning. It's a great thing. And uh, like Big Little Lies, we want to be at the center of more stories. And finally, I think the tide has turned because of, I think it was shifting slightly before hashtag me too, but I think now, now it's the right thing to do. And now people want to do it. They genuinely feel better when they're doing more stories that are driven by women. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. One thing that I think is interesting you're talking about the idea that seeing flawed, seeing sometimes even anti-heroic oh, women yes. or villainous women on screen villainous, can be just yes. as powerful as seeing, you know, a Wonder Woman or something oh, like that. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, we always love to hate characters. And I'm a, I've never played a character more that people love to hate more than Adora. And yet I took this part not for that. I took this part, first of all, it was stunning writing and it was led by Amy Adams, the incandescent Amy Adams and Eliza, this beautiful new young star and Jean-Marc Vallée. I mean, so it was a no brainer in a way, but it was still at the bottom was a chance for me to test my own boundaries, to see how far I can, how complete I can make this deeply incomplete woman. How surprising can I make her? Can I let everybody think I'm in this certain, she has a certain way about her. But then at moments, let all of that fall. And those are the parts that keep me fed. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had a, a bit of a relationship with HBO because you, you had done six years under. on 60 yes, Under. Beautiful. As a, as a, Another great, extraordinary yeah. part, uh, antithetical to, to Adora, but uh, Aunt Sarah, yeah. So you've kind of been here for this whole uh, era of great television. So yes. what has yes. been what has been the most uh, surprising thing as an actor about finding these parts in television at, at this point in time, you know? Well, it's interesting that I think a lot of these there were there were better parts for women, more of them. They were plentiful in television, not in film. And suddenly now through the last, I would say, you know, independent film has in essence saved women uh, because Mainstream, you know, the big studios, they have a certain agenda and they have a certain um, budget that's very large and they can only make a certain... So it, they're the limitations they have, and I don't blame them. I don't I don't think of them as villainous in any way. They're, it's a business. It's a huge billions of dollars. I think independent film is now back up and running. You know, when I did high art, it was really rising. And then it just fell. It's all about distributors. It's all about cash, you know, small amounts of cash in independent film, but you have to have lots of people who have lots of small amounts of cash. You know, often films are, small films are made by, you know, people giving 200,000 here and 100,000 there and 500, you know. But I think television really has led the way. Right. Mm. And as women, I think we're all thankful for that. And now it's really, I think we have some of the best shows on television are led by women. Yeah. The most powerful, the most demanding, the most intricate and beautiful. There's great shows on television that, that are led by women. Mm. We sort of touched on how Adora is, has her villainous side. Let's say, what do, where did you find yourself? Because you, you really, I always hear actors say, well, I, I need to find, you know, I need to find a way to connect with them. What did you find yourself connecting to in Adora? Well, being a Southern woman, and, you know, I think Adora, even though she's Missourian, but it's Kentucky Missourian, it's that, that, that very fine line. I know women like Adora. I know women who have lived a life, who have a facade, who have the life that is um, not all visible. Uh, what you see is not what you get, but they're very good at that life. They're very good at that facade, which is in a way makes them very good actors. These women who live these 
deeply imperfect lives, but most people think they have this perfect life. But I came to Adora thinking she was perfect, mm, mm. thinking she was glamorous and gracious and kind and good-willed and tough, tough, but for the right reason, mm, mm. you know, yeah. and full of love, yeah. just strict and tough. Yeah, I thought of her as tough and strict. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and she's liquid and she's sexy and I hope, those are the things I, I wanted to bring to her. She's a little bit of a coquette at times. You'll see as things start to shift. And But she's, you know, um, she's not any particularly, she's not anyone I know. She's certainly not my mother. Hmm. Um, my, mother's made, my mother's asked me that about five times. <laughs> Patty, that, no, 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 that's not me. I said, oh, God, mother, no. Some of it. No, 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 no. <laughs> The best part of it. Yeah, the glamorous part is you, Mom. So I, I just tried to, I came at her uh, objectively. It quickly turned subjective, but I came, tried to come at her without preconceived notions. I'm going to badly paraphrase something I think Camille says in one of the episodes where she's talking about how basically you're argue, Camille and Adora are arguing about feminism and the need for feminism in essence. And, and Adora is saying, is sort of arguing that you just, as a woman in these societies, you need to just sort of find your own channel. And like Camille is saying, well, no, we should change it. So you, you know, the system is equitable for everyone. Have you, when you hear like that argument, the argument that the door is making, have you heard people make that in your own life? And like, what, what, what about that? Um, that discussion rang true to you, I guess I'd say. Well, both sides ring true because I have a mother who's of a certain generation, a grandmother. But my grand, but I was raised. Remember, I was raised in a house of five daughters and a mother, and I, all my sisters are very successful and powerful. And my mother ran the city of New Orleans. You know, she was president of the city council. So, remember, I didn't, I didn't have to talk about it. I lived it every day. I lived with a powerhouse. I lived with very um, fiercely intelligent and and very accomplished sisters and and a remarkable father who you know we loved deeply with all our heart and still do so i understand that yes you know i probably of course fall more on the side of camille i do think uh we still are fighting to find equal footing and it's seems almost ridiculous and impossible in 2018 that we're still having to discuss women in the workplace women in hollywood and equal pay. Mm. But good things come to those who wait. Thank God we didn't give up. <laughs> it sounds like your relationship with your own mother was, was very foundational. I mean, obviously for everybody, it's a foundational thing. But I, I, I was thinking about when I was reading through some of your other roles and some of your favorite roles of mine, you so often play these complicated mother-daughter relationships on either end, basically. What draws you to one of those stories? What draws you to a story about a mother and a daughter? Like, what do you think... How do you know somebody's gotten it right, you know? Well, I'll tell you something interesting. I'm not a mother. You know, I've never had children. And I've played so many, so many different mothers, so many mothers. But I think what's interesting for me is not having lived it, but I was ensconced in it with a kind of extraordinary mother. And I know the good side of a good mother. I know, although, you know, and a tough mother and all of that. But I think I come at this um, maybe unstung Mm-hmm. Again, objective. I can come at a mother because I've never lived it. I mean, I'm, I 
want to I pride myself I think I'm a very good aunt I have I love other people's children I have these two children who live across the hall from me in New York that I worship more than just about anything in the world and so I I do understand it I and I get it but I I lived a life with a, with a great mother and so I know what that is and maybe that's why I can also play horrible mother because <laughs> I know what it would have been like to not have that, to not have unconditional love, to not have someone, a cheerleader, to have a mother who didn't know how to sustain you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this as well, which is that we have, there is this thing that we talk about in Hollywood where women, you know, reach 35 and all of a sudden yes. all they can do is play mothers. And like- yes. But That's most limited. of us are. I'm, I'm the exception, you realize, every day of my life. Yeah. It's like, no, I don't have children. <laughs> and like, <laughs> that's limiting, but also like the mother-child relationship it is. is so fundamental to the human experience. Like, how do you know when you're reading a script? How do you know, okay, this mom is a, a thought, well-thought-out character as opposed to like, she's just there. To, oh, you, you know, know it immediately. Yeah? You know it immediately. Mm-hmm. And you know... The writing, you know, great writing is is visceral. It's indelible. It just, it smacks you and you know immediately, oh, I've never taken this journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never, I've never quite seen this mm-hmm. before. And that's what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't say I'm never playing another mother again because although Adora might be the mother of all mothers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe could hang up my mom cleats for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they are often the most interesting and the most um, inviting. You know, I recently, I got to do this, play this amazing detective who has no child, nothing. You know, it's loosely based on um, uh, Martin Amos's Night Train. It's a d- New Orleanian detective and directed by Carol Morley, the great British director, Carol Morley, and it was astonishing to play a woman that had no ties, no connections. Mm. So it is always great in our industry when, you know, people let you stretch and let you kind of step outside um, the familiar. Well, let me, let me ask you about sort of a different aspect of this, which is I think it's a really great story about the South and about being, yes. you know, well, the near South, let's say, because it is Missouri, which is... But it's the kind Kentucky of a, yeah. border. And yeah. it is more, that that, that part of... That is that is more southern. Yeah, my yeah. my makeup artist today. She goes, you know, I was born in St. Louis. I said, oh my god. She said, no, Betty, that's that's. I'm, you know, she's been watching the show. She said, oh my god, those are those. You're my people. Yeah, I was like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> well, like stepping onto the set uh, for this tiny town in the south. What, what do you think? It, it, it sort of this story gets right about that region. Because we tell a lot of stories about that region. And, you know. I think it gets the stratas right. I think it gets. The hierarchy, I think it gets um, the timbre, which is often the most difficult thing to get right Mm -hmm. because it tends to be black and white, and Mm -hmm. it's not. There's a lot of gray in the South. Mm -hmm. And and certainly where I'm from is far more progressive, and I grew up in a very progressive household. And I think also that's why I can play. Again, I I didn't grow up in this world. I grew up in a middle-class, suburban, progressive house. But I know that life. I know those women in particular. I know those families. Well, you mentioning the strata really made me think again about that argument with Camille and, and some of these other elements of the show, which is like 
can you continue to exist within this strata or does that inevitably cause more trauma, more pain? You know, the idea of hereditary generational trauma continuing to visit itself down from in the show, it's from the civil war, the oh, civil yeah. war period. Like how do you, like the South is so rich with history and new Orleans is <laughs> a city rich with history. Like, is there a way to escape that history at all? We have to, we must as good people, good citizens, good Americans, we must escape. We must never repeat. And I also think there's a way that we can, of course, let it be a part of our history, but there's no reason to celebrate those people. Mm -hmm. And that's the mistake we've made, is to celebrate Mm -hmm. people who condemned inequality. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We don't need statues. I think Mitch Landrieu did a great, great service to this city. Mm, when he took down the Yes, pattern. oh, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he did the right thing. They are in our history. They are part of our history. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to celebrate mm-hmm. what, what they've done. Mm-hmm. We just need to remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very awkward pivot, but I want to ask you about your own history. <laughs> um, and take, kind of take me back to the early days of your career. Do you remember what it was like when you were getting those first few auditions, when you were going out to try and find work and just like going <laughs> on everything? Like, tell me about like, like those, the early days of Patricia Clarkson. Oh, God. Well, you know, I was fortunate. I went to, I had great mentors at Fordham University, a man named Joe Jazewski, that I still owe so much to. He took me under his wing at Fordham, and then I went to Yale. And at Yale School of Drama, I had to become everything. I was not typecast. I wasn't the pretty blonde girl or the kind of sultry lady or whatever. I played everything from the bod in Pericles to, you know, the damsel in distress in La Ronde. I, I, I played Electra. I did. I played a, you know, a big Cajun mama. I played an eight-year-old murderer. I, everything was thrown at me. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of Yale... And I got, I was fortunate enough, I got a very big Asian out of Yale. So I, I don't, I didn't have the struggle. I, again, was fortunate. I didn't have the struggle. I, I started to work quickly. I got a play off Broadway and I did an episode of Spencer Fire <laughs> and Spencer. Uh, and then I, I played a murderer. I was fortunate in that I, and I was going up on some very big things when I first got out. Then I got uh, nine months out of Yale, I got cast in the Broadway production of House of Blue Leaves. I auditioned for John Guare and Jerry Zachs, and they were amazing to me. They didn't cast me. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me a standing ovation. They were like, oh, my God, you're amazing. I went back for two callbacks. You're amazing. I bought a new dress. I went in. I played uh, Karina, the hearing-impaired movie star. But nine months later, when Julie Haggard left the show, I got, I got the call from mm. Jerry Zachs. He said, Patty. He left a message on my home machine. Remember those, our home machine? It's Jerry Sachs. Give me a call. (laughs) Um, And he did. And I got, I went, stepped into House of Blue Leaves. Can you imagine how gorgeous? With John Mahoney, the great John Mahoney, Swoozy Kurtz, Stalker Channing. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, So I was lucky. And then, and then I got the untouchables and, but, but there were a lot of, I mean, I auditioned, there were a lot of movies I didn't get. I got The Untouchables, but there were many, many movies I I didn't get, you know, things I went up for. It's funny doing a big with Elizabeth Perkins. I was up for big. I didn't get it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, damn it. What are you doing here, Elizabeth? <laughs> um, how did you learn to, because, you know, acting is one of those professions like writing where you have to just learn to just let rejection sort of wash over you. How did, did. you learn to do that? It was tough. Mm-hmm. I had not, you know, I was now 25 out in this world, 26, 27. A lot of women I was up against had been acting since they were in, in their 20s and like 20s and they were, you know, teenagers, 20. And I was just hitting this field kind of, I'd never done a movie. I'd never done television. I'd never done any film work. Mm-hmm. Never. I'd never been on camera. So it was tough for me to get out there and, and learn. But a lot of people like Brian De Palma really took me under his wing. Um, people really were great to me. But I I always worked very hard on my auditions. You know, Yale had given me a worth a work ethic that was that saved me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think because I'd been at Yale and had been successful at Yale, I had such an amazing three years there that when I got out and I wasn't getting parts, I was like, okay, okay, okay. I'm I'm gonna survive all of this. I I'm I'm just keep, you know, giving uh, the best audition you possibly can. Yeah. Because that's how it works. This is when I go back to talk to my alma mater, I always say, your only card, calling card is an audition. And often when you're in that room, if you've given the best audition possible, maybe they don't cast you because you're too tall, too short, too young, too old. But if it's a great audition, the next time you write for something, you're right back in a room. And you've got a producer, a casting director, a director. You've got all these people sitting in a room, and they'll bring you back. And so I always tried to remember that. But I had heartbreak, and I had disappointment and tears. and But I had great family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a great supportive mother and father and sisters. And I had, you know, boyfriends, and people were always, you know, I have amazing, remarkable friends. So you just, you have a support system. You can't do it without a support system. And, you know, that's what's heartbreaking is some, I think there's some young actors who have no one around them. And it's, I think it's why there's issues. They have issues. They they need people who have found themselves. You're going to be around actors as it is who are all struggling, but you need people who aren't struggling around you. Right, right. I love talking to actors who have, stage training because I love the theater, but also I feel like there's something you gain from stage training for on-camera acting that I almost can't express, but I'm wondering like, what do you think working on the stage as often as you did in college and, and, and early in your yeah, career in and, my and career. throughout yeah. your career now yeah. that gives you when you're going to go do it an on-camera role where ostensibly like the acting is, I don't want to say smaller, but, but different, you know? Well, it is smaller. It is, you know, it's this cliched. It's smaller. It's more contained. It's, it's, it's just, it is, it's radically different in, in certain ways. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. It's all in the same tunnel. It's mm-hmm. all, it's all about uh, truth, humor, emotion. Uh, um, it's all, it's all about hoping people see a real true character mm-hmm. in front of them, a real person, uh, whether it's large. I mean, I've done some very broad comedic things. I've, you know, broad sitting. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that was, I mean, that, that part was written. So it was stunning. It was just brilliantly written. But I, to do the large, the small, it all is, it, it's slightly different muscles, but it's all the same blood. Mm-hmm. 
it's all from the same body. Mm. So it's all about, I think, giving great writing its due. Mm -hmm. And that's showing as many colors and shades and facets as you can. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. You know, acting is, is tough. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's, a, it's a great problem to have. Yeah. <laughs> What's a part you've played that maybe you wish had been seen by more people or it had a, a better reception or a hit? Where, where do I give you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I know quite a few people saw Cairo time, but I'm very, I'm very proud of that film. You know, that was a, that was a very difficult film. A very, very famous director said to me, you know, Patty, Patricia, people don't make films like this anymore. Mm -hmm. They have immediate results. You know, to stretch a film for that amount of time, mm -hmm. really. And remind all me of it's how, shifting. Remind it, me how long that one went? Yeah. I mean, an hour and a half. You yeah. Know, mm -hmm. Cairo time, an hour and a half. And it's just, just stretch it. Yeah. For 90 minutes. Yeah. To mm -hmm. dissolve in the end, and mm. but it's it. I'm I'm proud of that film. I'm proud of learning to drive, which I think is now has this kind of following. Mm -hmm. More people now are seeing it. Mm -hmm. I think it had a certain life. I think it was funnier than people, you know, realize. I mean, now people love it, and when they see it, I'm very fortunate that people are now seeing it. But so there are several things I've done that I wish, you know, a couple of films I did, but. People I love and care have all seen them. So I guess, you know, my small crowd has seen them. <laughs> when you do enough indie films, like, do you kind of have a sense of which ones? Or is it just, does it just sort of feel random which ones break out and which ones kind of you just languish? Not, you can game? never, you know, there are certain films that you know, oh, God. Um, <laughs> or but like, look at Easy A. Who knew? I mm -hmm. mean, we were shooting this small little film, yeah. or Lars and the Real Girl. Oh, yeah. Uh, which now at the time, though, wasn't as big, you remember, as when now it's huge because people have gone back to it because of Ryan. And, but, it, you know, these are just, these are stellar little films with yeah. stunning performances, mm. you know. I mean, Ryan Gosling and Lars and the Real Girl, is, but everybody in that film. Yeah. You know, Emily Mortimer, Paul Schneider. I mean, they're incredible. It seems to me like people are really connecting with sharp objects. Yes. But does it seem that way to you as well? I can't find a hat with big enough brim. <laughs> 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 um, I'm not quite sure when was the last time this happened to me. It's a little it's a little crazy. Mm, yeah. It's a little crazy. Yeah. Um, but it's all because there's an obsessive quality people have about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Patty, um, messages where I say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to call you, but don't tell me anything. But I, if maybe if I ask you a few questions, maybe you'll, you'll tell me like one or two things, like where it's going. But, you know, I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have my own ideas about it, but don't tell me. It. Okay, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're kind of coming into the end and we end yeah. every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you some of those. And the first is, do you like to watch your work? Do you no, like to watch your I movies? Don't. Why, why not? I just don't. Yeah. It's just not for me. I make myself, I really don't. And that's not false modesty. I love the shoot. I love the working of it. I like to see the other actors. I tend to close my eyes when I'm on the screen, mm. but, um, I, 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 I've worked with so many brilliant actors, so I have to see them great directors, and I can't be an idiot. <laughs> but I don't like watching myself. Yeah, yeah. Who's the actor, living or dead, you've learned the most from that you never mm. met? Well, I've spoken about this. Probably Ingrid Bergman is, is, is the most 
imprinted on me as a young, at a young age when I was first starting. I wasn't a cinephile in any way as a child. I wasn't one of those movie people. But I remember seeing her at a young age in Gaslight. Mm. And I couldn't believe what she was doing, the levels, the complexity. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen a lot of other women of that era in those movies, and they all seemed slightly arch to me. Yeah. But she seemed true to me. And finally, whether it's for the food you ate or the company you had with you, what's your most memorable favorite meal you've ever had? Listen, darling, I grew up in New Orleans. So <laughs> that's a very hard thing to do because I don't know. I'm going, am I going to insult everybody I know? You know? <laughs> it's interesting. I would say maybe the it's a series of meals. I, I don't cook often, but I make a Thanksgiving dinner every year and invite 18 people. Oh. And those are my favorite, time, some of the most favorite times of my life were having my 18 of my gorgeous friends at my house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, cooking for them. Mm. And uh, I don't know how the food is, but you talk to that. Talk to them. <laughs> but it was this, these, this memorable night of having extraordinary people in my home just the love and the you know the conversations and the the familiarity and and the deep true interests we have in one another. Yeah, those are my favorite nights I've had. Mm, mm, it's beautiful. We don't see it in sharp objects, but I bet Adora throws a mean Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia Clarkson, thank you so much. Sharp Objects is on HBO. Thank you. So, hey, can you imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibovitz? Now you can with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes and they're taught by the best in the world. I have taken a look at some of these. I've really enjoyed them. There's a great one from Ron Howard, the Academy Award-winning director on filmmaking. There's a great one from Malcolm Gladwell on the power of doing good interviews, which you can tell I've taken. But Masterclass also is shot with cinematic production quality, and it offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content that you'll find only on Masterclass. So you can choose lessons from classes taught by over 35 masters, including the ones I've talked about, but also like astronaut Chris Hadfield on what might happen if we traveled to Mars. Doesn't that sound interesting? And new classes are always being added. Whether you are pursuing your passion or developing your career, you're going to find a master class for you. And for a limited time, I think your interesting listeners get a free seven-day trial at masterclass.com slash interest. That's right, masterclass.com slash interest for a free seven-day trial. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash interest. That's masterclass.com slash interest. You're going to love it. Hiring is challenging. There's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com. So here's what ZipRecruiter does. It sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But it doesn't stop there. With ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology, it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. 
With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think, T-H-I-N-K, ZipRecruiter.com slash think. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. My guest for this segment is a return guest. She was on last year. You are our second return guest uh, after the American showrunners, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. So thank you. Wow. I I mean, obviously that first interview was just so gripping that you had to have me come back. (laughs) Hey, people liked it. Uh, It's Paula Kerger, the president and CEO of PBS. Thank you for joining us, Paula. It's wonderful to be here, You know, it's been a year since we last talked. In that year, uh, it's been momentous in a lot of ways. What has kind of changed about the way you approach your job and what has stayed the same? Well, look, uh, you know, we live in a period of such extraordinary change. Um, Justin Trudeau, a few months ago, in a speech said that the, um, the pace of change has never, and I'm paraphrasing, has never been this fast, nor will ever again be this slow. And I think it's accurate. You really think about everything that's happening in our universe. Um, you look at the now what feels like limitless money that is being spent on new content, particularly from, you know, some of the newer players, uh, Netflix and Amazon and and HBO and others. You look at the media consolidations, you know, the fact that Rupert Murdoch realized that, you know, he didn't have the sufficient scale that he wished. And, uh, you know, so now you have the Fox-Disney merger you know, and I mean, who would have guessed these things a year ago when we were together? And so, you know, what does that mean? And what does that mean, particularly for a public broadcasting organization? So, look, we've never competed uh, based on our pocketbook. You know, we punch uh, very far above our weight. We're always looking not only to make good strategic investments in content, but we're constantly looking, even in this avalanche of, of content right now, for the things that uh, we're uniquely positioned to take on. A good example, this project we're in the middle of right now, Great American Read. It works for public television because a big piece of it is interactive. You know, we have stations around the country that are connected to bookstores and to libraries and to reading groups. Many of them have ongoing shows either on television or on radio where they bring in authors on a regular basis. We have the scale of being able to create a national conversation, but we have the depth that we're able to create real local conversation. And then when you layer on digital media on top of that, you can really create something that I think is is very unique to us. And so, you know, that kind of project is something that is, um, is important. And as we look forward over the course of this next year and the next couple of years, I think really understanding the kinds of activities that we can do that leverage those attributes that are very specific to us, I think are going to be tremendously important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Netflix has a budget of $8 billion, both for original programming and acquisitions. Uh, I know PBS's budget is not $8 billion because no. <laughs> I think the president would be tweeting about it if it was. Um, but, I mean, obviously you can, like, your your programming does get acquired by a Netflix or by a, yeah. an Amazon sometimes. But, like, how 
do you compete when you have, you know, a one, one, one hundredth of whatever it is yeah. at that? So, um, so obviously we don't go head to head. So, um, when you have a content budget of that size, and I've seen even more recently in the last month or so, um, even larger numbers, uh, attached to uh, Netflix. So who exactly knows how much they're spending? Uh, is unclear, but it's significant. And so if they're interested in a project, we're not going to bid against them. Our job always should be to look for the kinds of stories that aren't well told, uh, to look for the next. And if there's a you know, sort of theme of where public broadcasting, I think, has always been, is always looking for the next, you know, first with cooking shows, hearing of of Bill Loud's death last week, the first with the reality shows. I don't know that I proudly claim that, but but that's where it started. First with gavel-to-gavel coverage. Uh, Before there was C-SPAN, there was public television and the Watergate hearings. Uh, First with financial news shows. And so it's always been part of what we've done. And, And I think as we look at even this media landscape that continues to morph and shape, If you look at where some of the big media organizations are making investments, it's actually in a narrower track. Uh, They're not buying as much documentary. They're investing very deeply in uh, particularly in areas like drama and particularly certain types of drama and uh, that actually aren't exactly in our wheelhouse. So I I think we as an organization compete not by trying to – you know, play in the same sandbox, but to really figure out what will be meaningful to the public and making investments in in those types of properties and those types of ideas. You get asked all the time about the next Downton Abbey, and I'm not going to ask you that. But I am going to say that Ken Burns is another sort of pillar of the PBS community, has been uh, making movies for many years. But, you know, let's say Ken Burns gets goes off somewhere else. He ends up at some other company, or, you know, eventually Ken Burns isn't going to be with us, God forbid. Like, what are you doing to find... I can't believe we're in a conversation talking about the demise of Ken Burns. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, when you have have those pillars, like, here's here's a total lateral move. I look at FX, like, they had so much tied up in Ryan Murphy, and now he's gone. So when you have these sort of pillars of your community, what are you doing to be like, when this ends, or when this moves on in some way, we're going to have, you know, a new thing to come in. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it's a it's a fair question, and you know Ken Burns' uh, work has evolved over a period of years. He also has an entire production company now working with him of very talented filmmakers, including his own daughter and son-in-law. So, although Ken is uh, is the name that most people know, there there are people working alongside of him. But that's just his organization. Uh, one of the priorities for us. Uh, on an ongoing basis is we continue to look for that next filmmaker. We continue to look for people that have powerful stories to tell. Because, you know, I, I think for for many of us who have uh, really spent now many years watching Ken Burns' documentaries, you know, he changed everything. Mm-hmm. He changed the way that we think about documentary film. And there are others, I think, who are doing really great and talented work. We make a deep investment in documentaries as it is. 
I, I believe that there are more documentaries on public television than there are in any other broadcaster. And, and so we're constantly making investments in, in, in other filmmakers in addition to Ken with the hope that, you know, we'll have a robust pipeline of, of, of work moving forward. And we have a long-term arrangement with Ken. Yeah. So I wouldn't worry that in the next year or two he'll be, you know, suddenly working with another broadcast organization. And I say that not just because, I, you know, we have a, a long-term contract with him. I say it because we give him the flexibility to work in a way that most other media organizations would not in that – he has a lot of latitude to develop out programs at whatever length or size works. He works on multiple programs at the same time. But the thing that I know is of great interest to him is we also are connected into classrooms. And he, at the end of the day, is a storyteller, but he's also a teacher. And the idea that he's creating content that reaches a national audience, but he's also creating content that is used in the classroom, I think is a very powerful combination. Well, that is interesting you bringing up the documentary thing because I think I was checking and I believe like people talk a lot about Netflix being nominated for best documentary at the Oscars, but plenty of like a lot of PBS films. We had three. Yeah. We mm-hmm. had three films mm-hmm. that were nominated for Oscars this yeah. year. Yeah. And, um, and I think that, you know, again, uh, it, it has been such a big piece of what we do in public broadcasting on an ongoing basis is, is also we don't just go around and try to buy up films at the festivals. You know, we make long-term investments in filmmakers, our series POV and Independent Lens in particular, you know, work with a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers to help them get their films made and um, as well as distributed. And in the last couple years, we've made a commitment um, to also help some filmmakers with theatrical distribution. And so we did it this past year with the film on Dolores Huerta, um, we have a film right now, um, Dark Money, which mm-hmm. is getting a lot of attention in uh, in its theatrical distribution, and so uh, and will be part of the POV series. So I, I think that you know our relationship with the independent filmmakers, uh, filmmaking community, is something that's tremendously important to us, and and it's one that we're constantly looking for ways to help them. Uh, and support them as a, as an industry. We're really in a documentary boom right now. What 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 do you value in a documentary? What are you looking for when you're trying to pick up something true to life? We're looking for important stories, and we're looking for stories that are not well told. And I think even again in this broadcast universe, uh, media universe that you know that feels so expansive. Um, there's so many critical stories. I mean, again, I come back to the film about Dolores Huerta. You know, that phone exploded last year, and so many people never knew of her. And so, I mean, that's a perfect example of a film that I think is uh, is tremendously important. You know, she was an important part. She is an important part of our American history, and uh, for many people, she's she's an unknown figure. One of the other things that people are perpetually asking you is uh, when you're going to do more original to PBS scripted drama, you know, um, like you did with Mercy Street a few years Mm -hmm. ago. And that's a tough area to play in. It's a tough area to play in uh, for the reasons that we've just been talking about, because there's a lot of people, you know, that are making deep investment right now in in drama. And, uh, you know, again, with limited resources, if there's a lot of competition, I would just as soon, you know, focus our efforts a little bit. Having said that, I also feel that there are a lot of important American stories. It's it's harder for us to 
pull off a series like that because we are fully funding it for the most part and with a lot of our production partners for particularly some of the British work that we do, we're not funding the entire production. We only fund a piece of it. But I I think that as we did with Mercy Street, I'd love for us to experiment again. I think if the right property comes along and we're able to figure out how to parse the money around it, I would love to do it. You know, Mercy Street was a great experiment. Um, We had it on the air for two years. I think um, I'd love to try some other things. There are so few places telling stories about so many different parts of America. And PBS certainly does that in terms of like documentary, like you have a very wide swath of documentary subjects and storytelling. But it's really a place where scripted, like, I feel as though PBS could be powerful. And I realize Mm -hmm. I'm not like going to get you to admit you're doing that right now. But like, yeah, but I, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, there's a couple ideas that are percolating along. Um, You know, I, I spend a lot of time on the road. I spend a lot of time you know, visiting communities all across the country. And in addition to, I think, these wonderful stories that really help us understand one another, I think there's also a big opportunity in in the arts space. And that's another way that I think people can share culture and ideas in a way that feels not as confrontational as it does by just putting people around a, a table and watching them yell at one another. So Um, We experimented uh, working in partnership with Vox on uh, this uh, project with Marcus Samuelson, No Passports Required. Um, That is yet another way of, of, through the lens of food, helping to understand what it means to be an American, which is, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a beautiful story. And again, one not well told. You do so much traveling all around the country. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you um, are seeing and hearing about America in your travels that you feel like maybe television doesn't reflect sometimes? The biggest thing that I hear, and you, you see this reflected in, you know, in, in other interviews is that there are many people in this country that don't feel heard. Uh, they feel that media focuses on either coast They feel that people refer to flyover country as if it's another country and not, you know, who we are. And I think that there is a great desire, and and on all all levels, including, by the way, what we were just talking about, which is around arts and culture. You know, we're in the midst of uh, this uh, project, Great American Read, and you know, there are parts of the country that through that project have an opportunity to talk about their own literary traditions. You think of the South, but you think of some of the great writers from the Pacific Northwest, and you think of people whose experiences are are beautifully told uh, through fiction. And uh, so I think there's a lot of ways in trying to build bridges to help us understand one another. And the first part is to is to stop and to listen and then to figure out, okay, you know, what stories aren't we telling and, and who are we not hearing from and who needs to be around this table? Mm-hmm. In the time between when we last talked and now, the Me Too movement has become uh, such a big uh, part of our discussions about entertainment. It's touched every network in some ways, including mm-hmm. PBS. Mm-hmm. Now, what I want to ask you is going forward, I realize PBS has a different situation where it has various member stations and like you don't have direct control over them, if that makes sense. But going forward, how can you work to ensure your sets are safe, people feel safe working there and don't, you know, aren't harassed or abused? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I've, I've talked to a few people about, you know, this because, uh, you know, in public television, 
you know, we're, we are different than other media organizations on a, a number of levels. I mean, one is that um, we've always had a lot of women in leadership roles, either at our stations or as producers. And, you know, we, we do think very carefully about um, who's in front of as well as who's behind the camera and who's making the decisions about what work is done. Um, and I think that that's been important. But, you know, we are a federated system. We are very decentralized. And so we're not organized like a traditional network. A lot of the production is not done by us, but it's done by independent companies. And, um, you know, it would be easy to say, well, they're independent and we have no control. I, you know, we have a responsibility. And so although I don't have ultimate authority, I think we do have a very clear mandate and responsibility to ensure that any organization that works with us understands our values and um, and respects those. So we've thought very carefully about how to make sure that that is conveyed. We also look at our own organization and make sure that if people are aware of anything that is inappropriate, that you know they know how to how to communicate that because I think that's a that's a big piece. I think in reading the stories that have happened in other organizations, people were not comfortable and were afraid of retribution and and that can't be. You have to have an environment where if there is an issue that you're able to um, you know make sure that people feel heard. Mm-hmm. That that is one thing that has been a struggle for some places is that, you know, the feeling that HR is not going to be able to do anything. How can you convey that, yes, we've empowered these people to take care of you, you know? Well, a part of it is is, is it's a larger cultural question. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, we're, we are slightly different than other organizations. Look, I run a company that, and um, our offices are in, in the Washington area, where we compete against media organizations that can pay significantly more than us. I've always felt that the way for us to really compete for the best talent, because at the end of the day, our business, our industry is all people, is that uh, we have to have a culture where people want to work and really compete to work and feel that we look at them and we look at them as individuals that are contributors and not just employees. And so we have um, spent a lot of time over the last years creating opportunities for people to figure out career paths, to be engaged in work. Uh, We have matrix teams where people from across the company can be involved on issues and projects. And we also create an environment where people feel that, you know, they can balance the rest of their life, which is also how we're able to make sure that we have women and others that oftentimes have to bear the responsibility of children and sometimes parents. And so that people can take time off and they can, you know, manage the aspects of, of their life. And so I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah. Um, and so HR then becomes not the place that, you know, adjudicates problems, but really becomes a business partner for all of our units. And and they have more visibility around the, the company and that people are encouraged to go there, not just for problems and complaints, but also to talk about career opportunities and other things that will enable them to uh, lead hopefully happier but um, ultimately more productive lives at work. Mm. Have you have you made um, changes in that regard, um, not just connected to Me Too, but you also talked about other issues women face in the workplace. Like what sort of changes have you um, 
tried to make as an organization, keeping in mind that PBS can't unilaterally impose these no, on its member but, stations. But, and, and, and look, on a lot of it, we lead by example too, right? So we try to share out a lot of the work we're doing. So, so part of it is also reflected, you know, just sort of generationally on workforce. So a lot of the, of our younger employees and a third of the people that work for me now are, are in that category of what's deemed millennial. Um, and not to talk about a group of people as a sort of a monolithic group because we're all individuals, but there is a different expectation for people that are younger coming up about how they want to manage their career life and how they want to manage that work-life balance and so forth. So, you know, part of what we've done is, you know, we're more flexible with hours. We, as I said, we, we form these um, what we call sprint teams around specific issues where people around the company can participate in, in projects. Also, with some of the young professional group, we've been working with our stations uh, to help them understand, you know, what the changing dynamic is in the workplace. And, and people are really interested. They're really interested in trying to figure it out. Um, they want to be able to attract the best talent. And the way to do that is you create a, a, a workplace that's dynamic and forward-looking, and, and that's what we're attempting to do. Yeah, yeah. When you have that decentralized structure, what is sort of the biggest challenge of that, but also the biggest benefit of having that federalized system? Yeah, so, you know, the b- deepest benefit is that, you know, we work hard to have, you know, robust media organizations across the country that are dynamic, and at a time when of media consolidation, I think that's a that's that makes us unique, and I think it's got enormous power. You know, the challenge of it is that I have a lot of responsibility and not always ultimate authority to try to move issues forward. And particularly right now, as we come back to talk about, you know, this whole media landscape where, you know, with digital, you could be operating, you know, only sort of at the national level with content that's then pushed out. And we've worked really hard uh, to try to make sure as we're distributing content on, on platforms like Roku and Apple TV that it's not just Ken Burns' work, it's not just national PBS work, but it's also the local station content as well alongside of it. And I think that as a system that will make us stronger, it is more complicated. There are people that are really excited about the possibilities of what, you know, um, the various platforms offer up. And there are a lot of people that would, not a lot, there are some people that really hope we could go back to those days when it was kind of the networks or maybe the networks and some cable operators and haven't quite realized that, you know, not only has the world changed, but there's great possibility if um, we can fully embrace the fact that it is changing and that we have content that's interesting and compelling and quite sticky and that really works well in all of these various iterations. And I think, to me, that's really the exciting thing about, you know, working in this media landscape at this time, but particularly working in public media. When you look at sort of this rush toward digital you said last year there's still a lot of people who watch over the air. I watch Emmett. 20%. And, yeah. 20%. So, and that's not cable or satellite that's watching television over the air. Yeah. So when you look at that, sort of that rush toward um, digital or streaming, how much of that do you feel is inevitable? And do you think some of that old TV apparatus is always going to be with us? You know, you know I, people always point to radio and they say, you know, when television evolved, then you know, you had radio. I think to a certain extent, there are a lot of people that like, you know, a curated television experience that's sort of laid out. I think a lot of people have discovered the fact that, you know, that you can get free television and and that there is um, 
lots of opportunities, you know, not the same as cable, but there are a lot of opportunities in broadcast. And I think that there are people that are very focused on curating all their own viewing experiences. And so watch nothing on schedule. Everything is on demand. And we've got to, as an industry, you know, obviously do both. And I think that the the first group, the one that's uh, still watching off of a broadcast schedule, I don't don't really see that going away. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people that, you know, will flip on the television and they go to certain brands. This is where I think we benefit. I think people have a sense maybe even more than a, a you know a network brand of what PBS means and and they like the serendipity of of what we offer. So I don't see it going away, but you know look, it, you know if anybody that's flown recently knows that you know most planes don't have um in-flight movies anymore. Um uh, some will offer it up through an app that you have to have downloaded beforehand, which they're always reminding you. But some don't even have that, you know. And you, and if you walk down the aisle of any plane or any train or any other, you know, mode of transportation, you'll see people, you know, watching on um, on their smartphones or watching on their tablets. Um, you know, just a wider range of of content. I heard someone talking recently, uh, talking about the driverless car and really pondering whether that would be the death knell of radio. So much of radio was really still car-based. And in the advent of a driverless car, um, and I'm not sure I'm, I'm, by the way, I'll caveat up front, I'm not sure I buy this either, because I, can, <laughs> I cannot imagine being in a driverless car and not feeling like I need to have like some control, like looking out the window. But... Um, but there are people that think that you know television or or some sort of screen inside a a driverless car might be you know sort of the next thing i don't know i was i was recently in a cab and the cab driver i'm still horrified to tell the story i realized about 5 minutes into the ride that the cab driver was looking down i realized he was watching he was watching something <laughs> streaming on his phone as he was driving me you know so i think there are people that are doing that now but i do think that um you know, look, the the podcast, the audio experience, all of these things, they all seem to coexist. And mm-hmm. I think that to say that one is just going to completely disappear, I think that's a mistake. Um, well, I do want to just kind of lead into the end here by talking about PBS does have a news organization. I know that local PBS stations, local NPR stations are often the most trusted news outlets in those areas. But how do you combat the era when a lot of people choose what news they want to believe? For us, I, I look at how our audiences have grown, uh, particularly for NewsHour. And a lot of people have asked me a slightly different version of that question, which is how do you, you, know, how do you run a news organization in this environment? And I think that you, you need to not be distracted and you need to cover the facts. And I think that there are a lot of opportunities to be distracted you know, NewsHour is not a place you go for breaking news, but it's definitely a place to go for information and particularly the context around it. And they've really doubled down on that. I think the work of uh, Frontline around the really important news stories of the day, investigative stories of the day, they've doubled down. And uh, and I think the public is looking for that. I think that they're looking – I mean, I think, again, I, I keep using – a reference to brand, and I think that people understand what the PBS brand has represented, and I think they come to us with that notion that, you know, we're going to work really hard to try to be authentic and to put the facts out there and not tell you what to think, but to give you the information so that you can think. 
And I'm finally, I'm going to ask everybody this question, uh, but I do want to ask, what is your favorite show that's on another network? So right now I am watching The Staircase. Oh, I am yeah. not saying that it's my favorite, mm. but I can't stop watching it's it. It's brilliant. That's a brilliant one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you love about it? I love the fact that every time you think you have it figured out, it has taken yet another turn. Hmm. And um, I love this idea of, and, and, and I mean, the, the story just evolves and just gets weirder as it goes. Hmm. You know, when I, f- I first started watching it, you know, the first episode, I thought, well, I can't imagine how this is going to continue to go on <laughs> because it seems, you know, fairly straightforward. He did it or he didn't do it. I mean, it'll just... But the levels within it are just so complex, and I just really, yeah. I, I, I just think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great series. My favorite thing about it is if you read the Wikipedia page, there's stuff that's so weird they couldn't fit it in the show because nobody would believe it. Yeah. Um, well, Paula Kerger of PBS, thank you for joining us. Always thank you. Delight. Always a pleasure. I Think You're Interesting is supported by the help of listeners like you who listen and spread the word and hopefully review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever fine podcasts are sold. But it's also hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. And in case you haven't listened to any episodes of this show before, that's me. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. And our audio engineering is thanks to Rebel Talk Network, who recorded on location at the Beverly Hilton this week. Our recording engineer was Ernie Hurtado. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, As we mentioned, you can email me at Todd at Vox.com. If you have a comment about the show, you can email the whole show at ITYI.podcast at Vox.com. And you can send me a tweet at TVOTI. That is Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with more interviews with folks from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture. Some recorded in a hotel, some not. You know, that's, that's just the way we roll here. But until then, remember, if your editor asks you to go back to your hometown and solve this strange murder case that's just popping up, that's a good sign that you're in, like, a weird gothic thriller and you should probably just, like, get away from there and see if you can find your way to a romantic comedy. <laughs>